Hello! Welcome to the Trans-Pacific Tractor Beams edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. Emily, why why am I calling it Trans-Pacific Tractor Beams? I mean, I don't really know, but I think it's because <laughs> we're discussing trade and tractors for farmers and how the TPP could have been good. I am Felix Hammond of Axios, and I came. I take full responsibility for the title of this show, <laughs> and I apologize for it. Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. You are utterly befuddled by the title of this show, and you are probably like 99% of the listeners. Anna Shemansky, you're the casting vote. Does the title of this show make any sense? I'm going to go with no. <laughs> <laughs> But you're so, listening but anyway, fine, so thank you. But, you're, but thank you all for listening to this <laughs> incomprehensibly titled show. I promise you that the actual show itself will make more sense. We will talk about the tractors and the soybeans and the Chinese trade deal. We will talk about Visa buying Plaid for $5.3 billion. And we will talk about the Rooney Rule, which is a way of trying to increase minorities in the upper echelons of an organization and whether it actually works or not. Also, a Slate Plus about Nike Vaporflies, all that and more. We have a great numbers round coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. OK, so the big news of the week was a trade deal with China. I mean, there were actually two trade deals this That's week. True. In, yeah. in case you hadn't noticed, and most people didn't, the Asunke got signed, or it wasn't signed, but it was passed by the Senate by yes. a massive bipartisan consensus. You see, bipartisanship is possible. We can all get behind Asunke. Um, or USMCA. Or NAFTA, as it's probably yeah. easier to, to, to call <laughs> exactly. it. Um, Asunke is the new NAFTA. NAFTA. Asunke <laughs> is the new NAFTA, I should say. And um, Maybe you're onto something. We should call it NAFCA. We could call it NAFCA. <laughs> now, I have heard that the main reason that Donald Trump is so keen on USMCA rather than NAFTA is just because it starts with the letters US. And that's America first, quite literally. Mm. That's true. Also Clever. because he wants to suggest that he has like gotten rid of NAFTA. So if you have a new bill that starts with NAFTA, that is going to indicate that you, in fact, have not gotten rid of NAFTA. But as we all know, USMCA is not much of a difference from NAFTA. But this phase one trade deal with China. The best phase. 
it, I mean, like, yeah, exactly. You can't, you can't have any other phase if you don't have phase one. So it's got to be a big deal. And it has hundreds of billions of things in it. So um, thankfully, I have someone here who knows about all of these billions and can unpack it for us because it gets a bit confusing a bit quickly. So Anna Shemansky, yes, explain. This doesn't seem to me like a normal trade deal. This seems to me like some kind of a weird promise by China to spend a bunch of money on American goods? That's because that's pretty much what it is. It is, in fact, not a normal trade deal because it's not really about freeing up trade. It is, in fact, about managing trade. And the centerpiece of this deal are these pr- these promised $200 billion in additional purchases. And this is the Chinese government who's going to make these purchases or Chinese state control company or the Chinese government is just going to like twist the arms of private companies? Exactly. A little bit of all of the above. Right. And the reality and granted, there are other parts of this, too. There are some nods towards intellectual property protection, although the protections don't look like they're going to be that good. You know, there are a few other things. However, the purchases are really the biggest part of this. And when you start to look at these numbers, this is where pretty much everybody becomes very skeptical about this deal. So the Chinese have promised to buy a gazillion dollars of like soybeans and people like you sort of get out your pencil and envelope and you're like, there's no way they're going to be able to buy a gazillion dollars of soybeans. And so what's the remedy in the deal if they don't buy a gazillion dollars? Well, I mean, this is a really interesting question. I mean, to me, so in December, they started to kind of put out some of these numbers. And that's when everyone was starting to do the math, the soybean math. and was like, no, that's not happening. Now, if you looked at the actual deal, it definitely includes some language that gives you a little bit of wiggle room. So my assumption are two things. One, there is some language that suggests that the Chinese could say that the reason they aren't making these purchases is because of other things that the US are doing, so then they're not in violation. And there's also wiggle room that offers the ability for a little bit of creative accounting to pretend, you know, so you can potentially say like, oh, well, you know, we're going to be buying them in this period, but we're not actually going to be sending them till this other quarter, or we're going to be, you know, not actually paying for them for another year, but then we're going to be booking them in this period. So my guess is if they get to anywhere close to hitting these targets, it's going to be because of creative accounting, not because they're actually buying all these soybeans. But in terms of if I'm an American soybean Mm -hmm. producer... I'm no longer really saying, hey, I produce great soybeans and I've put a lot of effort into developing a relationship with soybean buyers in China who want to feed their cows or whatever it is they want to do with my soybeans. Instead, I'm basically saying that I'm going to produce these soybeans and then the American government and the Chinese government are going to come to some kind of a deal. And if the deal works out the way that I hope it'll work out, then the Chinese government will buy my soybeans. And if it doesn't, then they won't. And it kind of feels like infantilizing and I can't really build up a relationship with a buyer or anything like that, which it takes me out of control of my own business. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. And granted, it wouldn't just be the Chinese government doing all the purchasing. But yes, this is true that you, know, you had a functioning market. And then you had Donald Trump come in and essentially destroy this functioning market. And then obviously China started to build up and Chinese buyers started to build up relationships with other providers. You know, Brazil in particular is one that was providing a tremendous amount of soybeans. And so now you have, you know, Donald Trump out there saying, you know, buy tractors to all of these farmers. But these farmers are not stupid and they are very, very skeptical about this. You know, the the statement that came out from the kind of farmers union is basically saying, 
we are, you know. Wait, so he's not he's not telling Chinese farmers to buy American tractors. He's telling American farmers to buy American tractors because they're gonna harvest more soybeans. Need more tractors to harvest more soybeans. It feels like Donald Trump. Like it's the equivalent of like I go to the doctor and I have appendicitis and the doctor performs surgery and like cuts a bunch of other stuff and injures me and then I am hurt. So I go back to the doctor and he fixes all the mistakes he made and sews me up and he's like, I did it. But my appendix is still swollen. Like (laughs) nothing has happened. This deal is dumb. Like he screwed up trade relations between China and the U.S. And now the fix doesn't even get us back to where we were, if I'm understanding this correctly. Yeah, I mean, look, in now I know the argument, I, you're, I think you're 100% correct. I know the argument against that would be like, well, but if if you do have, you know, all of these additional exports to China, then then that would be moving the needle in terms of the bilateral trade deficit and in terms of exports. It would be different from what you had before. And you almost certainly will have additional exports. But the but the bigger question is, okay, let's let's say we even have some magical world where they're able to come up with these magical soybeans and send them. Okay. Like <laughs> l- let's pretend that world exists. Even then, what this deal does is it's it's one more step in breaking the rules-based trade order that supported the growth of global trade and the growth of globalization. And so to me, this deal is another kind of failure of that. And and the problem is that if we have more of this type of activity, more of this type of bilateral activity, that is going to be net negative for global trade. It creates more instability and it just creates more animosity because, you know, if you're a trading partner that all of a sudden is going to get a trading partner of China that could be damaged by this. Granted, China is say, saying that's not going to happen, but it almost certainly would have to happen. Well, then you you might try to retaliate in other ways. Right. And I, I was reading, I think, in the Wall Street Journal that one thing that's interesting about the phase one deal is the arbitration provisions where so you don't go to some neutral like WTO body right. to settle China and the U.S. wouldn't to settle their disputes. There's like rounds of negotiations that take place. And that's sort of like a finger in the eye, another finger in the eye, or I mean, well, someone's I mean, it two was, fists are in the we, eye we of the co- WTO We covered this, this yeah. on Slate Money. Like, right. They can't go to the WTO because the U.S. government has basically rendered the WTO completely useless. And I think Anna's absolutely right that what this really is is a repudiation of capitalism. Like you used to have this capitalist system where you would set the rules and then let everyone go out and compete and get gains from trade and Ricardian advantage and all of this kind of stuff. And now Trump is like, no, I don't want that. I don't want to play by the rules. I just want to fix the outcome in advance. And that just feels like a deeply not very good idea. No, I, I, I agreed. And it, yeah. makes, it makes me very sad. Um, you know, and, and look, I, I don't want to suggest that the previous, you know, WTO led rules based order was perfect. It obviously wasn't the fact that, you know, China and other actors were able to break a lot of the rules suggests that there were clear problems here. But clearly, this activity is showing that this bilateral mercantilist strategy doesn't work either. Like there, there needs to be another way. There needs to be some other type of movement forward. And it's interesting because you did then also have Trump making these suggestions that, oh, now I'm going to be working with other countries in order to push back against, you know, Chinese subsidies to their state owned companies. And you're like, well, yeah, you should have been doing that from the very beginning. And like, like what, what, like this, 
And you can't on one hand say, I'm breaking up this multilateral rules-based order, and then the other hand say, I want to use this multilateral rules-based order to get what I want. So the the way that the Americans were trying to create a countervailing force against China before Trump came along was TPP, right? And that was like, we are all going to join up with a bunch of other Pacific Rim countries and create a big force which can you know, go up against China without having to enter into a trade war. Would that count as, uh, you know, would that would that count in terms of your desire for finding something which would have been better than the status quo ante, but like isn't the Trump solution? Or was that just an incremental thing that wasn't really going to work? I mean, I, I do think it was a, a good step in the right direction. I mean, I was very much in favor of TPP when a lot of people were bashing it for various reasons, because I do think that it it was the entire world acknowledging that the system that they'd had previously, where they were kind of saying, oh, you know, like, we're only going to push back on China so far. And obviously, individual countries weren't going to push back on China. You know, it really was, I think, a genuine step forward. But obviously, now <laughs> that it, that has been mostly trashed, and so I mean, it, it exists. It does. Right? It, it just, does. It but if you don't have the US. U.S. in it, I mean, like you can't. <laughs> like that's, that doesn't really work, right? Do you think that if I don't know Joe Biden is the next president, that he could join TPP, or would that not happen? I think it's incredibly unlikely. I feel like people, Americans, don't care about trade or trade deals that much, except for no one likes there's, oh, there's one person in America who really, really, really cares about trade and trade deals. And Bernie Sanders. Donald does, Trump. Right. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, who's like on... Actually, they're kind of aligned. If you watch... No, the they Dem- are. They're actually very... The Democratic uh, debate this week, they spent a lot of time talking about trade, and it just struck me as such a waste of time because I don't think Democratic voters, beyond not liking NAFTA... No one cares. Like, which is a problem. Most people, what USMCA is, I think they'd be like, ah, which is actually. I think it's a new kind of sports league. It's actually (laughs) kind of good branding if you think about it, because we spent the past like what two decades really polarized over NAFTA, NAFTA, NAFTA. Mm -hmm. So now you sort of like gotten rid of that, and there's the polarization could kind of go away at this point because right, it's it's hard to find Americans who hate. WTO or TPP or USMCA in the way they hated NAFTA. You're absolutely right. And, but by the same token, you're not going to find a huge amount of non-completely wonkish Americans who are particularly in favor of them either. It's just like, yeah, what? Who? I, I'm much more interested in USWNT. Yeah. <laughs> a, wim- a women's national right. <laughs> um, I, Yeah, I just think at a policy level, like there's just not much impetus behind any of this. And maybe a Biden would do differently because his powerful donors and you know they would have some sway over him and most americans don't care so you can kind of go in and also because it's legitimately actually important (laughs) like you know you've you've had there are legitimate criticisms that the u.s manufacturing sector and other sectors have against the what china has done and the way that you counter that is going to be through trade activity globally organized trade activity. So it's actually incredibly important. I agree with you that I don't think actually anybody cares. However, we care. if people want to get to where they want, they want wages to increase it, like this kind of thing is actually really important. And and the United Nations just came out with a big yes. global t- report showing that global trade grew in 2019 at 0.3%, which is by far the lowest growth rate in a decade. So yeah, we've got some work to do here. And that's bad for stability, right? 
yeah. political stability, mm-hmm. like world and, peace. And it's kind bad of for stability. it's bad for economic growth. Yeah. It's bad for it's, it's a, yeah. Oh, Trump! It's bad. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so we have apps now. What I didn't realize is that they've really grown in the past four years. I've I've had a few, I guess I was an early adopter. I've had a few little baby fintech appy things on my phone for a long time. I got a simple card when they launched. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, there are these online banks. They've been doing things for a while. There's Venmo. There's, um, there's Square Cash is super popular these days. And I was like, yeah, this is a thing. Okay, whatever. Um, it's just a different way of moving money around on the same old rails. Big deal. Turns out it's a big deal because Visa, which is used to be owned by the banks, was then spun off into this massive IPO and is much more than just a credit card company. It's, it's one of the main sort of financial infrastructure companies which moves money around the planet. They just bought this startup called Plaid for $5.3 billion, which is an enormous amount of money. It's like 50 times their revenues. Yeah. Um, and Square trades at like, 10 times its revenues. Right. And so they're like, this is obviously, in Visa size, a hugely important strategic move. And so the big question is, like, what is Plaid? What what does it do that Visa doesn't do? And why does Visa value it so highly? And what does that tell us about the world? Can you answer all of those questions? <laughs> I mean, I know what plan, you know, the basics is that it's the kind of API. It's it's the move. It's it's basically the connecting apps to the banks, right? It's that kind yeah. of infrastructure. Connects your Venmo to your JP Morgan. Right. So right. if so if you if you have a Venmo account, if I Venmo you money, what's ultimately happening on some level is that money comes out of my bank account and it goes into your bank account. Um, and Venmo, therefore, needs some kind of access to both of our bank accounts. And Venmo does not do that itself. Venmo uses Plaid to do that because Plaid is better at that than the only company that used to do this, which was this company called Yodly. And everyone hated Yodly. So these, you know, two, you know, guys started Plaid because they're like, we can do better than Yodly. And it was true. They could do better than Yodly. And so now everyone uses Plaid. And you know, the banks don't love this because it means that your login credentials are basically out there in the wild being mm-hmm. used to transfer money in and out of your bank account, and they don't have control over that. And then you can go up to them and say, a bunch of money left my bank account. And they're like, well, you gave your password to <laughs> Venmo or all these other companies. Um, but by the same token, the banks realize that people want to be able to use these apps, and they can't make it completely impossible. So... Plaid has kind of made itself an indispensable, pretty low-down layer in that ecosystem. So banks would rather deal with Visa than Plaid, probably, because Plaid is just some startup. 
visa, they know visa. So that definitely, so that's I think their end of it. And and I think that's if that's true for American banks, it's even more true for international banks. And Visa is this, you know, globally recognized, copper bottomed financial services behemoth. And the, if Visa goes along to international banks and says you're going, you're really going to have to allow access to this utility to allow people to access their money in the way they want to access it. That's going to be an easier sell than if it's this American startup called Plaid. And then from Visa's end, they want Plaid because the fear, I guess, is that credit cards are going away. And soon, no one will need visa anymore. Well, I don't think, is that true? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I well, yes and no. Like, I, I, I don't necessarily think credit cards are going away. But I mean, I do think people of, use them less. Yeah, I mean, I do think part of the reason of. that Visa paid as much as they did is because they definitely can see that the way people are moving money is changing, and it is changing rapidly, and that is going to continue. And I think they kind of want to get out in front of that. And they're and because, you know, obviously these credit card companies do still extract a lot of rents. Basically, you know, they're getting paid fees every time money's moving around. And I do think that there is some fear that as that system changes, that's not it, we're not anywhere close to that system really changing. But if it did, then that could cut into their business model. And so they want to get out in front of that. And that's part of the reason they're willing to pay as much as they did. I don't I don't think credit cards are going away, but I do think that Visa sees an opportunity to extend its model to beyond just credit cards. And they've done that already with debit cards, right? That was the the first big move they made, what, like 15, 20 years ago, was the Visa debit card. And that turned out to be very popular, both domestically and internationally. Um, and then this is like the next, you know, the idea is that Visa is becoming what, what someone described as a network of networks. And they, and so they're bringing on a whole bunch of different networks so that however you want to be intermediating your financial services, they are the company that is going to do that. I don't think, as Anna says, that it's because they see credit cards going away. I think credit cards have a huge amount of utility, especially in the United States and the United Kingdom. But, you know, there are lots of other countries where that isn't how people pay for things and move money around. And so they want to be able to meet people wherever they want to be. It does seem like we are literally heading towards a world without literal cards. That's going away. People use their phones now so much more and apps more than they used to. Like, I, I, I just visually see this in my day-to-day life, that people aren't taking out cards as much as they used so to. So there is contactless, and contactless, it's really interesting to see how it has taken off enormously in some countries and not in others. Mm-hmm. Australia, it's really big. UK, it's really big. US, it's creeping up slowly. And interestingly, the big winner in the contactless, in the rise of contactless in the United States is... Apple, that something like mm-hmm. two thirds, or I think I think yeah. it's over half of all contactless payments in the United States are made via Apple Pay, mm-hmm. which surprises me. But apparently, mm-hmm. it's a thing. You have your phone all the time. That's right, the thing but, you have all the but, time. But, but so like, of course, but Apple phones are a minority of phones. You you stumped me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I think Apple has just made pay, phone like tapping your phone somehow so, yeah. easier mm-hmm. than Android has. It's a little bit like podcasts. You know, Apple was a minority of phones, but everyone used to listen to mm-hmm. Apple podcasts. It was mm-hmm. always the big dominant way that people used to and still do listen to podcasts. And you're like, why, aren't, why isn't 
like an Android app competing with this because most people have Android phones, not Apple phones. And I've never really got a good answer to that question. So yeah, if you're you're getting towards a world where more people are using their phones to pay for stuff, like there's going to be more innovation and more plaids and fewer Visa. Well, no, remember that if you put your, like if if you pay with Apple Pay, um, let's say that you're paying with an Apple card Mm -hmm. on Apple Pay. What you're paying is with a MasterCard. Right. And you're going over the MasterCard rails. And then you can just as easily put a Visa card in Apple Pay right, and pay right. with a Visa right. card. No, you're still using your credit right. card. And, and this is what I, I think is because, yeah, so it's, it's not clearly nothing right now is changing that dramatically. But I, I do think this is interesting as like an antitrust kind of thing because you're thinking of their they are kind of doing a little bit of like what Facebook did, you know, and kind of buying companies, buying competitors in utero. And now I'm not saying that Plaid is going to necessarily be a competitor to Visa, but I do think when you have a behemoth, this kind of payments behemoth like Visa, buying this kind of company, partly with the idea of we think that payments are going to eventually, like this is going to be a big part of the market and we want to be a big player in there. So we're going to buy this. I just wonder how that'll look down the line. You know what I mean? I I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. And when I saw the news, my heart sank. And my, my first reaction to this was like, right now, Plaid is growing very fast by being all things to all people and anyone who wants to use it to connect to anyone else, they're like, yeah, use us to connect to anyone else, anything going on anywhere in the world. Now that they're owned by Visa, certain applications of Plaid, certain potential customers and existing and potential future customers of Plaid on some level are going to be competing with Visa. And Visa is going to now be faced with a choice and they're going to have to say, are we going to allow this tiny little plaid part of our business to cannibalize uh, the main part of our business that is credit cards? Or are we going to start restricting the number of people who can use the plaid service in order to shore up our core credit cards networks? And, you know, that might not happen for a couple of years, but it is almost certainly that question is going to start getting raised at some point. And I agree with Anna, that like there's something monopolistic about this. Visa and MasterCard are, of course, a huge duopoly. And anything that strengthens that massive duopoly is not a good thing. Yeah. And and not good for consumers. <laughs> I mean. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily, who is Rooney? He um, is the guy who came up from the NFL. He's it's now, Dan Rooney. He was Dan the head Rooney. of. He was the owner of the Steelers, I think. Yes, the owner of the Steelers. The Steelers is an American football team. It is indeed. Okay, <laughs> and he came up with the Rooney Rule and in so, two thousand three. So he he created a rule, and it was such a good rule that they named it after him. Yeah, it's okay. Big. The rule is is big. So the rule was just that in two thousand three, the NFL was kind of having a reckoning with the fact that there were just very few black head coaches. In one season, I think 
three, two or three were were fired, um, Tony Dungy among them. And there was a lot of upset. Johnny Cochran was involved. He was going to sue for racial discrimination. It was it was really big news. And then Rooney comes up with the rule, which is, don't worry, we're going to we're going to fix this. We're going to bring in anytime there's a head coach opening, we'll bring in at least one minority candidate to interview. And that'll be a requirement. The NFL adopts this requirement. And for the next few years, a few more black head coaches do get hired. So the number goes up from like two to six to eight. Um, so so the chap from the Philadelphia, what were you calling Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Pitts, Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> mm-hmm. implements this rule. Mm-hmm. And then the NFL, which is the whole league, says that's a really good rule and mm-hmm. forces all of the other owners to do the same thing. Yes. So the, all the teams have to and at that, least interview uh, one candidate less or they get fined. And the rule has stayed in effect to the present day and it still exists. Yes, the rule okay. still exists. So the rules yeah. exist the whole time. And meanwhile, so, and it looks like it's working somewhat for the NFL. Meanwhile, a lot of companies, especially tech companies, are coming under fire for not hiring any non-white people or not any women. So a lot of companies start saying, we're going to use the Rooney rule too. It's such a good rule. Um, so it becomes really popular right alongside in the NFL. It becomes like a management fad. Yeah, it's like, if you get criticized for something, you can say, oh, we're going to do the Rooney rule. Like Amazon had an all-white board a few years ago, and um, activist investors said, you should adopt the Rooney rule. And at first they were they said, no, we're not going to do it. And then people got very upset with them, including their employees. And they were like, OK, fine, we'll do it. So now they do it. And they, they put two black women on their board. What is the reason why people might not want to adopt the Rooney rule? I mean – Amazon. So Amazon told, they said at first, there's research that shows the Rooney rule just doesn't work and also common sense. So if you just, if you're hiring, you have like four candidates in your final round and one of them is not like the others, there is perhaps unconsciously, oh, you kind of think, well, that's a, that is a different, I don't want that different person, no matter woman, non-white or whatever. So there might be some natural prejudice and there's some research done that um, shows that if you just have one minority or a female candidate in your pool, statistically, their chance of getting hired is essentially zero. It doesn't work. So you have to have at least two or three candidates in your – and you have to have a diverse slate of candidates. So, so wait, the argument, the argument against adopting the Rooney Rule is um, – one is basically the same as zero, so we may as well stick with the zero. Yeah, I mean, there's no – it's disingenuous, I think, to argue against it because it's 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 not even – there's no like, reason not to do it. It feels like the bare minimum. There's no really. reason like, not to do it. Like, if you don't have a minority candidate, you're pretty much guaranteed not to hire one. <laughs> exactly. Right. There's no reason not to do it, which is why there was such an uproar over Amazon and they right. quickly were like, no, 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 we'll do it. Fine. Sorry. Um, but that said – the rule itself, it's not very effective because of what I just said. If just one, if it's just one candidate, statistically, zero chance. So it's cool to do the Rooney rule, and a lot of companies have. But if you don't do other stuff, then nothing is right. going to change in so, your company. As evidenced by the NFL, we're talking about it this week. Well, yeah, why were you talking about it this week? Because head coach hiring season is kind of just wrapped up, and we're down to only three black head coaches in the NFL and one Hispanic coach. Everyone else is a white guy. There were five open positions this season, and um, four were filled again by white guys, and there's a lot of debate like in the sports. And it's all male? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of debate in the sports world over, like, did the most qualified candidates even win? They point to this guy and they say, oh, he only coached one season in the NFL and this qualified 
black coach, you know, he's he, you know, coaches like the MVP quarterback in the league. And, you know, there's a lot of it's it's quite controversial, but it just got me thinking about this, this rule that all these companies are like, we do it. And like, so well, in, in, in business, does it work about as well as it works in the NFL, which is like, if you're doing it, because you know the NFL or some activist shareholder or something is in, is forcing you to do it, then it's not really going to make any difference. You have to actually want to hire minorities in order to be able to yeah, effectively I mean, hire minorities. So in business, the rule alone probably isn't going to work beyond maybe the board, where you, it's very easy to ten slots to fill, and you can kind of really intentionally get it done. Well, I mean, I guess even at board level, there's a huge difference between we want to have a minority board member versus when we're hiring a new board member, one of the candidates needs to be a minority. Yeah. You have and, to sort of have both be true in order for it to affect change. And then in the business world, um, the Rooney Rule alone doesn't work. And the companies that use it that have been successful in diversifying a little bit do a lot of other stuff. Like they look at, you know, where their weaknesses are. Like I was looking at Airbnb is very intentional about this stuff. And they looked at their hiring process, which was like three-stage process. And one of the stages, they noticed there was a lot of drop-off of, of women and minority candidates. And that stage was where the engineers like go in a room and like do something at a board. And this look at I'm an editor. I don't know what they do with the board, <laughs> but they like do stuff with stuff and people evaluate them in the room and they found out that's where like a lot of women were dropping out. So they kind of intentionally then like revamped how that process worked. So they had like the woman have like an informal coffee with someone on the staff so and made sure that person was in the room so they knew someone in the room. And they always made sure there was another woman evaluating whatever happens on the whiteboard. I don't know. And then that actually, like, increased the number of women they were hiring. So it's like you have to be, like, a scientist, like, kind of tinkering with all this stuff. You can't just be like, have one minority person. Well, and, and I think one of the things you saw in the NFL, which I think has parallels outside of the NFL, is that one of the reasons that you don't have as many African-American or Hispanic head coaches is because you don't have as many offensive coordinators who are African-American or Hispanic. And that tends to be there tends to be often you pick from offensive coordinators. You also don't have as many head coaches in college football who are minority. And so, so I this think is, this is the the pipeline defense, which we've heard a, in, in a bunch of different well, places. I, yeah, right? and I'm not defending it. I'm saying that the, when you're thinking about the Rooney Rule, you would need to have it at every level. It can't just be at the top level, which is essentially what it was. If you want there to be enough candidates so eventually you wouldn't even need the Rooney Rule because you would just have so many candidates it wouldn't, you know, you need to start at lower levels. You need to start pushing people at, at lower levels to get into the types of positions that get you on that track. But here's the thing also. I was um, I was reading some article I missed because I wrote a story about this this week, a study from a few years ago um, that uh, ESPN wrote up. Basically, the problem is baked in at the entry level, just like you were saying, Anna, because of discrimination against black coaches who are hired at like half the they're promoted at half the rate right. of white coaches. Like it's just baked in and the, the study looked pretty good. They kind of controlled for everything else, every other possible idea. Like, is it because more white people coach quarterbacks versus this or that or that? And they controlled for everything. And it's just like basic racism, like kind of baked in the system. So you really need to go, like you're saying, back down to the entry level and sort of make that all right, too. Like you have to work at every layer of the cake. And I think it, within sports, I think it's just so glaring because so many of the athletes are obviously 
minorities. I mean, so it's like you, when you're thinking of where ultimately coaching talent is from, usually coaches have played at some levels. Now, sometimes coaches haven't actually played at the professional level, but often they have or they played at the college level, the high school, whatever. And so it just seems so absurd that when you have this enormous pool of talent, that somehow that's not getting into these leadership roles. I mean, I think and this is something that it is this kind of racist thing that you see. And I think in, in football, you see it, it it's, it's most glaring because football is kind of a weird team sport because you have a leader like quarterbacks. Like historically, quarterbacks have almost always been white. Mm. That is changing, thankfully. But you still see a tremendous amount of white. And I think because there is still these like racist assumptions about who is best fit for a leadership role. Absolutely. And I think the the parallel to corporate America is pretty is pretty right. obvious. You see the same things at the entry level. It's like half women and at the top, it's like 80 percent men. So what's happening? And there's always a lot of blame about mothers and stuff. But we all know that's that's not the story. Right. I mean, right. it's like more going on. obviously, yes, it, it's incredibly hard for women who have kids to do what in theory you are expected to do into these roles. But then the idea is, OK, well, if we want anyone other than old white men to be in these rules, then we need to accept that you need to put in things in place that enable people who have children and are going to have some of those responsibilities to also be able to do this role. That's part of it. Let's have a numbers round. Emily, what's your number? 38. What's that? That's the number of states who have now ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, we got another one. Who's the latest? The latest was Virginia, which um, their legislature yesterday, House and Senate, both said yes to the ERA. And, and this has been going on since the 60s? So, yeah. So, um, well, if you really want to know. So the ERA was first conceived in the 20s. Wow. And they kept proposing it in Congress, which all the men in Congress said, no, 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 no. Finally, 1972, they said, fine, and voted the ERA out of Congress. And it went to the states for ratification. And everyone was really excited. A lot of states ratified it. But then conservatives got really upset and they started talking about bathrooms and stuff. It's always bathrooms. It's always the bathrooms. <laughs> and uh, bathrooms, gay marriage and housewives. I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. Backlash. Blah, blah, blah. So the whole thing kind of ends in 1982 with only 35 states. Ratified. And how many do you need? 38, Felix. Oh, this is it? Yeah. So now it's gonna, we have a new constitutional amendment? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's kind of a mess because so they revived the effort, the three-state strategy in like 2015 or 2016. They got the three states was Arizona, Illinois, and now Virginia. However, there was a deadline for ratification. The deadline was 1982. Oops. <laughs> um, so, you know... Activists are like the deadline was unconstitutional because the last time we amended the Constitution, it took literally from James Madison to George H.W. Bush. That's how long it took from proposing okay. to. Okay. So they're like, it's fine. It's unconstitutional. We'll get the deadline removed. And then, you know, and then in the meantime, some of the states that ratified like are trying to take it back. Unratified. They're trying to rescind, which like, probably like, like is Steph illegal. Corey, that she's like un yes. unresigning. Yes, is, it's just like Steph Corey. And <laughs> also now, if if we were in the Obama years, this is probably go and get into the Constitution, but we're not. So some the Republican attorney generals in three states are like, no ERA, it's bad. They filed so, a lawsuit to so stop what, it. So what? Just let's I rewind just forever very quickly because this is the lightning numbers round. <laughs> but in like a real nutshell. What does the ERA actually do, and why do Republican attorneys general oppose it? So in a nutshell, 
It's unclear what the ERA would do. <laughs> it's a line. It says um, that you would not be denied equal protection under the law because of sex. That's it. That's all it says. So you'd think, so whatever, just stick it in the Constitution, like make the ladies happy, right? So, yeah, it, it's the kind of thing like once it went into the Constitution, then there would be lots of like laws that would be passed and lawsuits that would be filed. And you'd kind of like figure out what it means over the the years and decades, just like all the other ones, right? The reason they're, the the Republicans are upset, I don't know. They think it'll lead to more abortion rights and things like that. And they don't want equality for women. They don't want equal pay, lawsuits, and all this stuff, and the bathrooms. I honestly don't it's, understand it's why you would oppose something like that. There was even a piece in the New York Times, an editorial from a feminist, Joan Williams, who's like a work-life advocate kind of person, saying, like, we shouldn't even do this because if it did get into the Constitution, conservatives would go bonkers and file all kinds of crazy bathroomy kinds of lawsuits that would just turn everyone against women basically so i mean it's crazy anyway go on someone else do a number all right i'm gonna do (laughs) 36.2 billion which is the number of dollars that jp morgan made in profit in 2019 which is not only a record profit for jp morgan it is a record profit for any bank ever in the history of america and is more than double the highest amount of money it ever made at the height of the pre-crisis in late 2007. It is beyond, beyond, like, enormous profits. And part of it is the Trump tax cuts. They're, like, paying lower taxes. But most of it isn't. Most of it is just, like, these banks in general, and J.P. Morgan in particular are just raking in money hand over fist and no one is competing that way and they just get to make more and more money. And I guess the employees who in the pre-crisis go-go years of Wall Street would just eat up all of those extra profits in terms of bonuses don't have that amount of leverage anymore. And so their bonuses, like you don't hear quite as much about the, you know, eight-figure bonuses anymore. And so now it just goes to shareholders. Yay! Bankers don't get big bonuses. They get paid bonuses. They get paid bonuses. The the bonuses, the base salaries are higher and the bonuses are lower. That's part of the post-crisis, you know, financial regulation. Yeah, and this is this is something we can also. It's a larger discussion. Yeah, talk about in a a non. uh, My my number is really like not that interesting. What's your number? (laughs) My number. I think it's kind of interesting, is 97.5. Is that a percentage as well? It's not a percentage. It's a temperature. Turns out humans are getting colder. What? We, what? Yes. No longer is 98.6 actually the average temperature. It is 97.5. Oh, this is, is a so Fahrenheit. Yes. Ah. Yes. Do you understand Fahrenheit? I do. I've been living in America <laughs> for um, 23 years now. And so here, just for those listeners who don't speak American... Hey, Siri, what's 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit is 36.4 degrees Celsius. There you go. (laughs) 36.4 in real money is now (laughs) the official, and that's the average temperature of like human beings in the world. Yeah. So basically, they, they've they had the same thing for like 150 years. And it's not that they think that it was wrong. They think that people are actually getting slightly colder. And is, is, this, is, this, colder. is this global or is this American? I think it's considered global. Like I, I believe I'm only I'm hesitating slightly because I know the article. I believe the people they were looking at were 
essentially all American, but I believe the person who first came up with it was, I think, German. Oh. So does that mean to have a fever? Like fevers are lower. Like your temperature. You would think they would be right. I don't know. Right. I mean, I would imagine. It's always very controversial at the yes. Peck household who has a fever and who doesn't. We're always trying to figure it out. Yeah, I've, I've been I think part of the reason I've been I've been sick much over the last two weeks, I've been constantly taking my temperature. So that's also I think, why <laughs> I was like, it turns out. So there you have it. If your temperature is above 36.4 or 97.5, depending on like what language you speak, then you're running a temperature. Um, <laughs> so I, I say to all of you parents out there, just hand out those sick notes with abandon because even when you thought it wasn't temperature it probably was um but that's because i always side with the kids and i think they should just stay home from school on which note i think we'll wrap this up um thank you very much for listening to slate money thank you jessamine and molly for producing thank you anna and emily for being amazing and thank you all lovely listeners for keeping the emails coming on slate money at slate.com we We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.